0: You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Amen. Thank you, Lee, and thank you for doing so much work on this budget. I am glad I have zero to do with the budget, except here and there say, well, don't you think... Pastor salary? No, I don't, I'm i just kidding. I, <clears throat> I don't have anything to do with the budget. So I'm grateful for all the people that do. Thank you, all of you who have participated in preparing that for this year. Look, it, it's a chilly morning, as has already been acknowledged. I'm not going to mind if you get up and move around a little bit, do some of that. That's okay. Um, I promise you, by the time we finish, it'll be a lot warmer. It'll be much you no. Know, Again, just kidding. I'll I'll stop. That's bad enough. So let me begin by asking you if you can recall a time in your life when something that you thought was wonderful turned out not to be a good thing at all. Can you also recall a time in your life when something that seemed disastrous turned out to be exceptionally good? I remember Allison and I went to hear the symphony. It was a last-minute decision on on, on New Year's Eve, 2019. And there was a, a, a really accomplished pianist. I wish I could remember his name. I've tried to run it down. Who played that night. He played some Gershwin, but then he played the most beautiful rendition of Auld Lang Syne. And we were on the front row, how Allison got these tickets, I don't know, we were on the front row, not 15 feet from the pianist, and you could see his hands, we were sort of like this, looking at him. And I remember thinking, wow, what a beautiful way to come into 2020. Maybe a great year in store. (laughs) So you've had those times, right? It's just so ironic When you look back and you realize how wrong you were about something. We've been working through a series this summer, which also seems to be in the rearview mirror, Conformed to the Image of God's Son, Jesus. Every Christian wants to be more like Jesus, right? We do. Even if not at the moment, we do most of the time we want to be more like Jesus. The ways that God brings us to that place of looking more like Jesus can be quite surprising. The title of today's message is The Ways of God. Wise and excruciatingly beautiful. We know that reversals in life go both ways, sometimes dramatically so. Why is it then that we never learn our lesson Why do I so often think, oh, this is the worst possible thing that could happen? Or, on the other hand, this is the best thing that could possibly happen. My life is different going forward from this point. Sometimes our concerns about big changes in life are moral concerns. Surely it cannot be God's will for this to happen. And you're right, God is never to blame For our sins or other sins but we must remember that God is sovereign over all and sometimes the things that look like the worst thing possible turn out to be very good. Here's something that does not make sense. I have been saved by Jesus and I have this intense desire to follow him and live a righteous life but I have at the same time an equally intense desire to do what I want to do. In fact, it may be that the intensity of my desire to lust or to control others and or circumstances or to speak ill of others or to cut people off in traffic is actually more intense than it was before I was saved. What is up with that? Well, today's text is going to move toward an answer and it does so by describing the struggle with sin of one who is united with Jesus. So one last time we're going to review this about Adam and Jesus and I I I know you've heard it 3 or 4 weeks in a row but there's surely somebody here for the first time today or someone watching for the first time and I'm trying to figure it out myself trying to get my no real I do really understand this but I d- get how difficult it can be. According To Romans 5, all humanity is represented by one of two heads. One of these are two heads of the families, the two families in earth. One is Adam, and all humanity is initially represented by Adam. It's not good because. When Adam and Eve sinned, they brought upon themselves physical death and also spiritual death. And then, even worse, they passed that down to all, (coughs) excuse me, their descendants. According to the Gospel of John that Scott quoted earlier today. Interesting two or three connections between what Scott said and what I'm going to say. But according to the Gospel of John... If we do not believe in Jesus, we stand condemned. We are condemned already. But when we believe in Jesus, the Lord takes us out of Adam's family and puts us into the family that is headed by Jesus. We now belong in this family Over here, to believe in Jesus' work on the cross means to believe that he is, he was, and he is the Son of God who was sent by the Father. Adam was going to be the representative of all of us, but he messed up, and we suffer the consequences of his failure, his sin. Jesus came and lived the life that Adam should have lived, but did not live. Adam chose to sin. We don't get a choice to sin. We sin automatically. But Jesus <coughs> had, <coughs> also had that choice but did not sin. He would not have sinned being God. But he was tempted in every way that we are, but he chose not to sin. And thus he became the perfect sacrifice, the divine sacrifice and substitute for sinners, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So when you come to Jesus, acknowledging that you're a sinner, helpless to do anything about your sin, and you call on Jesus to save you, you move from one family to the other. Once we're in God's family, we are delivered from the power of sin. That's what Romans 6 tells us. But last week, the first part of Romans 7 indicated a problem that will become a full-blown crisis today in the text, Romans 7, 13 to 25. Even though we are no longer in Adam, Adam is still in us, and thus the plot thickens. Because of the way this text is written, I've chosen to read from the New Living Translation. The English Standard Version is on your digital bulletin, so read along, but listen to the way the New Living Translation puts it, and it gets it very well. It gives us a great understanding of what uh, the text means. But before we go to the text, if you would, uh, bow your heads in prayer with me. Our Father, this day, this day where we (laughs) reflect on a year that's not been anything any of us wanted, surely some good things have happened this year, but Overall, not a good year. It's also a chilly morning. It's also a day in which I'm sure some who are listening are struggling with sin in ways that they thought were behind them. I pray that you would encourage us from your word, but also move us toward Jesus and toward the Holy Spirit working in our lives to help us overcome sin. So, Open our eyes to the truth of your text and our hearts to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we begin this morning with the transitional verse 13. It was in the text last week. It's in the text this week. Paul is telling us that even though believers are no longer under the law's condemnation, even so the law reminds us of how very short we fall in our attempts to please the one who saved us. Now that we are saved, our awareness of sin is much greater. And that's part of the problem. Much greater than it was when we were seeking to justify ourselves by the law or trying to be good enough to measure up. Verse 13 in the New Living Translation. But how can that be? Did the law, which is good, cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good command for its own evil purposes. What was happening in Romans 7 was that we were finding, in the early part of Romans 7, we were finding that the law incited this desire in us to sin, just like a child that's told you can have anything in the, in the kitchen except those cookies. Don't eat those cookies, and the child is gonna, you know, move toward the cookies. There has been a a debate for a long time about whether the person that Paul describes in verses fourteen to twenty five <coughs> is a Christian or an unbeliever. The argument both go both ways goes a lot deeper than I'm going to be able to say, uh, but. I'm convinced as much as one can be on such issues that Paul is speaking as a Christian about his own personal str- or personal struggles with sin. He's a believer at this point. Everything to this point is in past tense. <clears throat> now he's talking in present tense. When Paul was a Pharisee, he called himself blameless according to the law. How could anyone call himself or herself blameless according to the law? Well, again, Paul had shaped and manipulated the law, just like all the Pharisees, and they strengthened it in some points and loosened it in others so that they could say, technically, I have obeyed the law in all ways. Now, though, as a believer, he realized he had only been deceiving himself. And the new understanding of the depths of his sin created an intense struggle inside of him. So Romans 6 through 8 is giving us a step-by-step explanation of the process of sanctification. Are you surprised that struggling with our sinfulness is part of God's design in making us holy? Even after we are saved. In Romans 6, we learn that we're no longer under the power of sin because we've been baptized into Jesus' death and His resurrection. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I promise you this is not a COVID cough. It's it's 24-7 year-round, but I've just got a frog in my throat today that, that's really active this morning. In Romans 8, we're going to learn how the Holy Spirit does for us what we're incapable to do for ourselves in our union with Christ, both for salvation and for that walking with Christ. Romans 7, though, is the fly in the ointment. Even though I'm no longer in Adam, he's still in me. And there are two sides of me that are constantly at war. And we'll let this war begin in verse 14. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree with the law that it is good. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. It's not that Paul did not hold himself accountable or responsible for his sin. He freely admitted that he was struggling with sin. No one had to tell him, that right there is your daddy and you girl, you are just like your mama. None of that. He didn't need any of that. He understood it. He accepted it for what it was. His trouble was, why? Why is it that I struggle with sin more than I did even before I was a Christian? I want to do the right thing, but I cannot for the life of me do the right thing. I hate this sin, but I find myself doing the very thing that I hate. Ever felt like that? Verse 18, and I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me. So now Paul identifies the culprit, the sinful nature, which could also be (laughs) called Adam. The Adam that is still in me is what's doing sin. He says, I've got this conflict going on in my heart and mind and it's no it's no longer this new me it's the old me that is doing <coughs> these things sinning in the ways that it is doing the greek word for sinful nature <coughs> is flesh it's sarks which is translated flesh in most of your Versions. Flesh is an accurate translation, but it can be a little bit confusing. Paul was not pointing to his actual body, but rather to that sin nature that lived inside of him and that lives inside us all and causes us to use our mouth, our hands, all parts of our body in the wrong ways. That's why Paul said use the different parts of your body you need to to give to the Lord in Romans 6. Now he's saying, this sinful nature is using me to do the wrong thing. In verse 21, again, the New Living Translation is going to say, I have discovered this principle of life. Most of your translations say law, but law in that this particular case is being used as principle. So the New Living Translation, again, gets to the meaning of what Paul was saying. Verse 21, I have discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. That sound familiar? You wake up. In the morning with an eager desire to serve and to please the Lord. But somewhere about mid-morning, you find yourself getting angry or being tempted to lie or to shade the truth or thinking about something you just ought not to be thinking about. There are two natures inside you that are battling for dominance in your life. The sin nature with which you were born and the new nature God gives you when you trusted Jesus. In Romans 6, Paul encouraged believers by telling them they're no longer slaves to sin because of their new nature. He told them to willingly offer their lives to be slaves to righteousness or to to joyfully serve Jesus. But now in Romans 7, we discover along with Paul that we're slaves to sin. Even to sins that we did not know in the past were problems for us. That happened to you this year? You're dealing with something you never dealt with in the past. It's kind of where Paul was. We now, as believers, have a much clearer understanding of the law, especially since we're not trying to manipulate it so that we can justify ourselves before God and the world. We may have thought, like Paul, that we were done with the sins that now drag us down. No wonder he was frustrated. So in verse 24, the climax to all the Apostle Paul's frustration. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Wretched man that I am. Some translations say. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? So if it seems to you that Paul was about to go crazy then you have understood this passage. He was about to go crazy with this conflict. For a believer to live under sin's control is a contradiction. The difference between a believer's approach to sin and an unbeliever's approach is that the believer cannot justify it, ignore it, dress it up to make it look and smell good. As they say, that doesn't pass the smell test. You know, we know that a whole lot. About our sin. Why? Because not only do we have that sinful nature inside us. Given us fits. But the Holy Spirit is dwelling us inside us as well. Reminding us of our union with Jesus. And what God expects of his children. We have not heard about the Holy Spirit since Romans 7, 6. But he will take center stage in Romans 8. What does the Spirit do? He points us to Jesus and to the gospel truth that we are sinners incapable of justifying ourselves before God. Furthermore, we are incapable of living a Romans 6 kind of life of obedience and our own strength. At the end of Paul's deep frustration over his sin and his inability to live for the Lord, he answers his own question, which is, Who will free this wretched man? That I am from this life that is dominated by sin and death. Verse 25. Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature. I am a slave to sin. I thought Lee. At first I thought Lee was joking when he said praise the lord for 2020 i thought i started to laugh and then i thought that's exactly right that's kind of what paul is doing here thank god for all of this in my life because i see how he's working to point me away from myself to jesus christ when you are a sinner and the Holy Spirit makes you aware of your sin before you're saved. So that you know you're incapable capable of making yourself worthy of heaven. What do you do? You say, oh God, I am a sinner. Jesus, save me. Right, we all get that. But that was before I was saved, right? Now I want to please the Lord and obey his word and live for Jesus. So, what's up with this struggle? Before I was saved, I tried to do good because I had to. If I didn't, I would go to hell, right? So I tried to do good because I had to. Now that I'm saved, I desire to do good because I want to. But when I want to do good, there is another law, another principle, another me that doesn't want to do good but instead wants to sin. So what should I do now? cry out, oh God, I'm a sinner. Jesus saved me. Same as you did before you were saved. Am I saying that a believer can lose his salvation and thus need to be saved again? No, not at all. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day because our only hope is in Jesus. We will never fully realize what God has done for us until we stand before Jesus. But this helps us to begin to understand. Look, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. There's a lot I could say, but the future tense of the Greek verb in verse 24 indicates that we will only be fully delivered from sin in the future when Jesus Christ returns. We wouldn't say it exactly the way Paul says it, but that's what he means. When will I be delivered from this body of death? When Jesus returns. For now we live in the tension of already. Not yet. Next Sunday. It's all going to come together in Romans 8. We'll learn about the Holy Spirit's role in our lives. Doing through us what we're incapable of doing. Ourselves. Obeying the law. Fulfilling the law. And pleasing God. In the meantime though. There is a struggle. Look, when I was first saved at 18, I talked a little bit about this last week. I thought I'd conquered all sins and weaknesses except for one, smoking cigarettes. For whatever reason, I could not conquer that sin. But I thought I had conquered all the rest. Now, the Lord has saved me, so now it's up to me and I'm going to do it. But somewhere around six months to a year into my new life in Christ, I began to struggle with old thoughts and attitudes. And it felt like I was worse off than I had been before I was saved. Now understand, I I was at Bible college during the school year and working as a counselor at TVR Christian camp during the summer. So I looked pretty good as much as a, like, 93 pound, you can't believe how skinny I used to be. But I look good as a Christian. You know, so inside though, I was a mess. I remember one day I was at TVR and I was standing outside of the ranch house at the far end of the ranch house toward the ball field just above what is now Walt Bob. So some of you have an idea of where I was and I looked up in the sky and it was kind of like today it's just really cloudy and I remember thinking lord will this struggle never end am i even a christian i don't know how i can be a christian and struggle inside like this like i do and in that overcast sky it's like the clouds the clouds literally parted for about 4 or 5 seconds and i saw blue skies And then they clouded back over. But by the time the patch of blue was covered again by the clouds, I sensed the Lord's smile on my life. It's just like, children, when you are really dramatic about something with your parents, it's the worst thing that's ever happened to me in my life. And they're just sort of smiling as if, oh, you'll be okay. And you're like, you don't understand. That's kind of what the Lord does with us adults. He's smiling, saying my purpose is being accomplished. If you get the sense that I or Paul are justifying sin in any way, that's not the point. But the Lord understands what we're going through. He recognizes it. Look, it's not that experience, though, that assures me of God's love. Always judge experiences by the word, not the other way around. Always. So when people write books about going to heaven and telling you what it's like, go first to the scripture. Then you can see, does it fit or not? Always judge by the word. It's not now I've lost some of you that were right with me the whole way. I'm sorry. Um, we're we going to get a heavy dose of God's love from Romans week, uh, 8 over the next two weeks. I am jumping around. Must be the cold uh, in my words today. The second of which Ricky Lee will preach from the end of Romans 8. The most One of the most beautiful passages in all of scripture. So if God saved us and loves us. As much as he as we know that he does. Why Romans 7? Why not skip this struggle with sin and go straight to Romans 8, 1? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And from there on to the spirit-filled life. We're going to end our time this morning by thinking about why God allows. Such chaotic struggle in the life of his children. I'm going to spend more time on these at home group. I'm just going going to mention five. I almost hate to say it, but it's going to be really quick. I promise you that. And I think you're going to be encouraged by this. Why is it that God allows these things to happen in our lives? Why Romans 7? First, to remind us of our utter dependence on God from go to woe. That's how we say it, down under, right? Allison, I think I've told you recently, all the time she's saying new stuff that I never heard before. And I thought that was so funny, first time I ever heard it. From go to woe, we say from beginning to end. Uh, From go to woe, we never get past needing the Lord's help to live as we should. We should be growing in holiness Becoming more like Jesus all the time. But the best way for that progress, progress to be halted is to think that we no longer need God to live this life. In fact, that was part of my problem. Have you ever thought about the fact that the more we know about God, the easier it is to live without Him? I mean, we know what to say. We know how to act in certain situations but we're really not depending on Him to help us live. Struggling with sin reminds us that we will not be successful in this life apart from the Holy Spirit. Second, we need Romans 7 to enable us to see sin as God sees sin. Verse 13 sums it all up. As believers, the law helps us to see how terrible sin really is or as the King King James puts it, I love it, that sin might become exceedingly sinful. It makes sense when you think about it that the closer we are to God, the more sin is seen in all of its ugliness. Far from relaxing about sin because we are forgiven, we agonize Over our sin. And that drives us to pursue holiness. And to be more like Jesus. Which leads us to the next benefit. God allows our struggle with sin. To protect us. From the debilitating sin of pride. God is really good about that. Keeping us from being too proud. Does the apostle Paul of Romans 7. Seem to be different. Than Saul of Tarsus. Before Jesus met him. On the Damascus road. Indeed. He does. He was so sure of himself before. Now. Nothing. Is certain. Here's the man who used to trust. In his own goodness. For his relationship. With God. But he's no longer filled with the self confidence. In his ability. To defeat sin. One of the worst possible things for us. To think about this Christian life is I got this. I got this. And even though we acknowledge the truth of Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Nonetheless, it's easy to begin trusting our flesh for success in the Christian life. The flesh is a great imitator. And that's what the flesh does. It says, okay, I've got this now. I've got this. I'll take over from here. The Spirit was leading, but look, I think, I think you, and, you and me, we're a good team. We can handle this. Come on, let's got it. We got it. Let's go. No. Our failures, especially when we sin intentionally, our failures have a way of shielding us from overweening pride humility leads us to the next benefit of our struggles, which is to prompt us to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Two groups of people, again, for those of you who are new, these, these might sound a, a little strange, but those of you who have been here for a while know it, and you, if you're new and you hang, you'll, you'll get it too. Those who have a theology of glory and those who have a theology of the cross. A a theology of glory is characterized by those who are trying to make themselves good enough to be in Jesus' family. But they're stuck in Adam's family. But they're finding ways. They say, you know, I feel pretty good about that. The problem is they just stay right here in Adam's family. Even those who are over here try to justify themselves. Well, this proves that God really loves me because I did this and I got a blessing. In fact, that's another characteristic of a of the theology of glory is, if I do this, God must do that. He owes me. You can say, wait a minute, God doesn't owe you anything. Well, it says right here in the Word, because they've taken the Word and manipulated it to live with this theology of glory. And a theology of glory is exactly what it sounds like. It's about me! A theology of the cross, conversely, recognizes that if God had not sent Jesus to die for our sins, we would have no hope of eternal life. Our dependence on God does not end at salvation, although it's easy to think, I agree that the gospel was great to begin the Christian life, but now it is up to me. Start with the gospel, but now it's up to me. Romans 7 may be God's way of asking, how's that working out for you? Preaching the gospel to yourself every day reminds you that the Christian life is a life of continual repentance. And don't think of this as a, a as restrictive, but it's freeing. If you have committed <coughs> the same sin 100 times this month, it's a little early in the month to say that, wouldn't you think? Maybe... that. Maybe since September 1, if you've committed the same sin a hundred times since the beginning of September, know that God welcomes the repentant child with open arms. The problem with legalism, the problem with a, a theology of glory is that the moment we mess up and we really are aware that we've messed up, we think there's no hope. But a theology of the cross is constantly looking To Jesus for forgiveness. Rather than God's forgiveness moving us to develop a casual approach to sin. It spurs us to live in the shadow of the cross. Making us more like Jesus. That's the gospel. One last benefit to our struggle with sin is. It causes us to long for Jesus' return. I will be so glad to be done with this flesh. Won't you? It may feel like being done with our sin is not the best motivation to want Jesus to come. The same way you may feel like trials and tribulations are not the best motivation. They're not the, they, they shouldn't be our best motivation for wanting Jesus to return, but they're both in Scripture. In fact, this was very much Paul's motivation in these last two verses. He's crying out, Lord Jesus, come and deliver me from this flesh. Who's going to deliver me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This was Paul's way of saying, although I struggle with sin and will until the day I die. So get this, is this a stage in life or is it all of life? The answer is yes. Sometimes it may be an intense stage where Romans 7, and by the way, these cycles go far beyond sin. Just trouble in our life, you may be having a period of great trouble. There's a purpose for it, and it's pointing you to Jesus. And one day you'll look back and say, I'm not, I wouldn't be near the person I am had it not been for those struggles before. I wouldn't be near the person if I hadn't struggled with sin because I wouldn't see it as so awful. I would be trusting in myself. But now I see. Paul <clears throat> says, though, although I struggle with sin, I will until the day I die. Jesus will fully deliver me from this sinful self. When I stand before him. Come Lord Jesus. Amen. We agree. If you're struggling with sin today. Really struggling. I said in the last week or two. I'm far more concerned when you're not struggling. When you think you got everything all together. Or when sin doesn't bother you, you justify it. But if you're walking with Jesus, sin is going to look a lot bigger than it does when you're not walking with Jesus. And if you're really struggling, that's a good sign. It doesn't mean be content, just satisfied, stay where you are. But it does indicate that the Lord is working in your life. If you're thinking nobody has ever felt like this before, well, actually, they have, and you're in good company with the Apostle Paul. That's good news for us. The depth of Jesus' love for us. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge. <laughs> who we are, apart from Jesus' salvation and apart from the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, reminding us and strengthening our union with Christ according to the Father's plan. We recognize that apart from that, we're nothing. But in Christ, all things are possible, all things are moving Toward the end, when sin will be completely eradicated from our lives and from the face of the earth. When King Jesus reigns. Lord, if ever there's been a year that any of us, I, I think I can freely say that every one of us agrees. 2020 has been a year unlike any other in the big picture. And then for some of us, huge events that have added to the sorrow and the pain and the longing for Jesus to reign. So Lord, in our lives, may we look to you. Thank you for not only giving us victory over sin, but encouraging us when we struggle with the very things that we hate. There's a part of us that hates. We need you, we yield ourselves to you, and we thank you for the beautiful word at the end of Romans 7. Thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord and for the wonderful word with which we will begin next week. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your magnificent plan. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission.